You guys can all open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. That's where we will be this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, if you don't know where that is, that's the first chapter of the New Testament. So hopefully that will help you. Let me pray. As, uh, as you turn there, let me pray. And we'll dive into our text this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for another Christmas season that we are in. I thank you for the time that we get to sing Christmas songs that have so much truth in it. That Emmanuel has come. God with us. And so I pray that you would be with us this morning. That you would help us to open your word. Um, to see clearly what is here in the Bible and to worship. To worship Jesus because he is our Savior. He is God with us. And he's the reason why we get to sing these songs. That's the reason why we gather on Sundays. And so I pray that you would be with us this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In light of Christmas season... I've been thinking a lot about gifts. Uh, that's kind of been on my mind. And as I was thinking about gifts, I, I started to think about all the gifts that I've been given over the years that I often take for granted. And I think if we're all honest, there are plenty of gifts that we have received that we have taken for granted. And as I was thinking about that, I remembered one of the most pivotal moments in my Christian life, I was b- back at home uh, after I was in college, and I was back at home for summer break. And my parents had decided that it was time for some late spring cleaning. And then that this meant that we were going to clean out the garage. Now, I don't know about your garage, but if it's anything like my garage, it becomes a huge, massive storage area. And our garage at this point had accumulated decades of things stored up. And of course, as a college student on my vacation, the last thing I wanted to do was clean the garage. But alas, I agreed to help my parents clean the, the garage. And at first, it was, it was fine. It was okay. But after a few hours of this, my patience wore thin. And as an immature, prideful, arrogant punk, I got angry. I went up to my mom and I yelled at her. Why do we have all this junk. Why do we have all this? Why do we keep all this? Look at this garage. Look at it. We can't fit anything in here. It is completely filled. Why do we have all this junk? And I'll never forget what happened next. My dad calmly walks over stands in between me and my mom, looks me right in the face and says, you will not talk to your mom like that. Look around. Look around at all the things that you're talking about. Look around at the shelves. Look around at the boxes. 
Look at everything that you're talking about. Look at everything you're yelling about. It's all yours. (laughs) All this stuff is yours. Because over the years, your mom has loved you so much that she bought all of this for you, for your brother, for your sister. It's all yours. She bought all of this for you because your mom is generous. She loves you. She cares for you. And now you're getting angry. Now you're getting upset about all the things that she has bought for you. Needless to say, I was humbled. I was broken. I was in tears. I was broken because I was now staring at all the dusty toys that represented my mom's love for me, my parents' love for me. And here I was, an ungrateful, prideful kid in that garage, and I was surrounded by years of gifts that I had obviously taken for granted. That was a defining moment in my Christian walk, a moment where my mom and dad taught me a very humbling lesson. And I bring it up this morning because I realize it is very easy for us to take things for granted. We may see the dusty toys of our lives, but we easily take them for granted. We hear these Bible stories year in and year out, and yet we are so tempted to take them for granted. And I don't want that to happen again this morning. This morning we come to a very familiar story, but it's one that's often taken for granted. We come to a very important passage that is an amazing gift, but we often overlook it. Because it's a passage, it's a story that we have heard hundreds of times, sometimes in different settings. It's the old Christmas story that we sing songs about. We may have even watched it in a Charlie Brown Christmas. We study it in Sunday school. We may have even seen it mentioned in an old movie or a Hallmark special. It's a story that is so well known that our society has erroneously moved it from the history section to the fairy tale. But I want to remind us this morning that we believe that this is a historical account. This is not a fairy tale. This is not Aesop's fable. This is the old, old story, but it is a story that we can never move past. It is a story that we are never too old for. This is not a children's story. This is a very important story for every believer. And so as we come to the Christmas season, I want to refocus us with fresh eyes on a story that we should never take for granted. It's the Christmas story. And if you were to sum up Christmas into one word or one idea, 
it would be God's presence. And what we'll see this morning is that God's presence is not only foundational to Christmas, but to the gospel itself. The presence of God is so key and foundational to the gospel itself and to Christmas that I titled this sermon, Don't Forget the Christmas Presence, which some of you may have thought I pressed the wrong autocorrect suggestion for presence, but no, don't forget the Christmas Presence. I want to refocus us so that this Christmas season, we do not neglect to thank God for his presence in general and his presence through sending us Jesus in particular. So this morning, don't forget the Christmas presence because God's presence is our Christmas present. Hopefully that's enough puns for those of you who expected me to have some pastoral puns. But let's dive into our text, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Let me read that for us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In this Christmas story, we'll unwrap three Christmas presents that we cannot take for granted. Let me repeat that. In this Christmas story, we'll unwrap three Christmas presents that we cannot take for granted. Let me give you those three Christmas presents. First, the birth of Jesus in verses 18 to 20. Second, the name of Jesus in verse 21. And third, the presence of Jesus in verses 22 to 23. So the birth of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. But before we unwrap each of these presents, each of these three Christmas presents, let me zoom out from Matthew 1, and let me give you the big picture of what is going on in Matthew 1. Matthew writes his book, his gospel, to the Jewish people. So he has a Jewish audience, and he means to demonstrate to them that Jesus is, in fact, the expected rightful king of David. He is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. So Matthew, in his 28 chapters, lays out evidence to demonstrate that Jesus is king. And so Matthew hits the ground running, making his case in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew begins his argument in verses 1 to 17, and he does that by laying out the historical record. He means to trace the family of Jesus in order to prove that he has the right to make the case. That Matthew is saying, I have the right to make the case that Jesus is the expected Messiah King. 
Now, just as a side note, a personal note, just something that you know about me, uh, Matthew's genealogy, which is verses 1 to 17, is actually one of my favorite passages. It's not the favorite, but it's one of my favorite passages. And that is because there's so much depth in something that seems so mundane and so boring. It's just a list of names, and so it seems like we just would just skip over it. But something that is, seems so mundane, so boring, there's a lot to unpack in it. And so maybe we'll get to that study at another time. But in Matthew verses, verses 1 to 17, Matthew makes a case that since Jesus is from the line of David, that Jesus has a legitimate claim to David's throne. So that's what he does in verses 1 to 17. And in our passage this morning in verses 18 to 25, Matthew will go on to say that not only does Jesus have a claim to David's throne, but Jesus is the only rightful heir to that throne. And so let me remind you of our structure in our passage this morning. Matthew will demonstrate to us by giving us three Christmas presents that we cannot take for granted. Matthew will show us that Jesus is the only rightful heir by giving us three Christmas presents that we cannot take for granted. So let's unwrap our first Christmas present, the birth of Jesus in verses 18 to 20. Let me reread that to help frame what we're about to talk, to, uh, talk about. The birth, birth of Jesus, 18 to 20. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, you are all probably very familiar with this part of the birth of Christ with this part of the Christmas story. But let's try to look this morning with fresh eyes because as I did that, so many things popped out to me that I didn't see before. I never really noticed, so I had forgotten. So let me recap what is happening here in the birth of Christ. There's a young woman, and her name is Mary. She's engaged to a man named Joseph. Now these are ordinary, seemingly ordinary folk. They're not rich or famous They're probably pretty average by just looking at them. But this couple, they were betrothed. And in in those days, betrothal, uh, which was a type of engagement, was a very serious contract. And betrothal was a more serious contract than our engagement today. Because today, engagement is a big step, but there really isn't anything contractually binding. There isn't anything legally binding about engagement today. Today, if you want to end an engagement, you could do so very easily. You just get to the wedding day and you just don't get married. But in ancient Israel, engagement was as binding as marriage, legally binding. So why not just say that they are married? Well, because betrothal was something, was something very specific in that time period. Betrothal was a short period of time where a couple would be considered married but they would not have yet consummated their marriage physically. So betrothal was a short period of time, a very intentional period of time. And according to their custom, in this betrothal period, the man would set up everything for his wife. This usually meant literally building her a house. 
Not buying a pre-built house, literally building her a house. And so obviously that could take some months to do. But in the meantime, they would be betrothed and they would be legally bound together, considered to be married. But they would not have consummated their marriage yet through sexual relations. And so it was during this time period, this betrothal period in this couple's life, that some drama appears. It becomes apparent that Mary, a virgin, is pregnant. Now, Joseph is no fool. He comes to the obvious conclusion that she must have been with another man. And I'm sure at that discovery, he's probably upset, disappointed, confused. And Luke 1 clues us in that an angel had previously told Mary that she will conceive a child without ever being with a man. The angel tells Mary that this baby will be conceived by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. So the angel tells Mary before she conceives. And now that promise has come to pass. And Joseph now discovers that Mary is pregnant. We're not sure if at this point Mary then tries to explain to Joseph what the angel says. But regardless if she tells him or not, one thing is clear. She is pregnant. And Joseph comes to the conclusion that we would all come to. He knows that there is no possible way for her to be pregnant and to have never been with another man. Even if she were to tell him what the angel has said, how can he possibly, how can he reasonably reasonably believe her? The evidence is clear. And the evidence points to the fact that there is some clear unfaithfulness to him and to their marriage bonds. And yet, Matthew says in verse 19, Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The word just could also be translated or as righteous, upright, or fair. But in this specific passage, there is that connotation of being merciful. He has mercy on her. And so Joseph is stuck in this dilemma. He wants to do the right thing, but he also wants to be merciful. Joseph is a devout Jew. He knows the scriptures. He knows what he's supposed to do. He follows the law. That's clear in both Matthew and in Luke, in Matthew 1 and Luke 2, 1 and 2. We see that. He's one who sticks to the law. He knows the law. He wants to do the right thing, but he wants to be merciful. And so what does he decide? He decides to divorce her quietly. Now, one of the questions I've always wondered, again, asking with fresh eyes, is how can Joseph be righteous and yet divorce her quietly? Because that, that saying divorcing quietly, it's kind of like, is he trying to get away with something? Because I would agree that his decision is being merciful. His decision to divorce her quietly is merciful, but is it the righteous act? Because the Pharisee and me would look at Mary and say, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. That's what I would say. That's how I would react. So is Joseph sacrificing his integrity in order to do what is merciful. 
And as I was considering this, I, I looked at the person of Joseph and saw the things that he does in, in both Matthew and in Luke. And see how he knows the scriptures. He is a righteous, devout Jew. He's knowledgeable. He follows the customs. He follows the law. And as someone who is a devout Jew in that day, he would know the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy has two passages that come to mind. Two passages that Joseph would know. Deuteronomy 22, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. We won't go into all the details. I won't read those for you, but let me summarize. The book of Deuteronomy in chapter 22 and 24 give Joseph two options in this case. They lay it out for you. He has two options he can choose from. First, he can publicly accuse her, and the result of that is she will likely be stoned to death. That's Deuteronomy 22. And then his second option is he can declare that she has found no favor in his eyes because of her indecency. And in, that's in Deuteronomy 24. And in Deuteronomy 24, the idea of indecency has to do with her nakedness. So it does apply here. That there is something that has not found favor in his eyes. And in Deuteronomy 24, he can give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Both are legitimate options. Both are valid options. But one is more merciful. He wants to do the right thing, but he doesn't want to be vindictive. So he decides to send her away quietly. Matthew tells us, because he is unwilling to put her to shame. So as Joseph was considering this and considering divorcing Mary quietly, he has a dream. And in this dream, an angel appears to him in verse 20. And the angel says this, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to break up this dream into three parts just to point out some things and to emphasize some things for us. First, the angel says, son of David. The angel means to remind Joseph of who he is, and this is key. Why is this key? Because the angel wants to frame what he is about to say to Joseph with that reminder, son of David. He means to remind Joseph that, Joseph, you are from the line of famous kings. Joseph, you are from the line of Josiah, Hezekiah, Solomon, and most importantly, David. I say most importantly, David, because let me remind you that in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that his kingly line would last forever. In other words, God promises David that his line, as his kingly line, would never come to an end. And that's important. And so the angel reminds Joseph of his place in the line of David. And he says, keep this in mind as I reveal to you what is happening. That's the first part of the dream. The second part of the dream I want to emphasize is the angel says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why would Joseph fear doing that? He might fear to take Mary as his wife, because if he were to keep her a virgin as she is, but she has a baby and she is pregnant, this is scandalous. People will talk. 
Rumors will spread. He will be accused. He will be shamed. She will be accused. She will be ashamed. Their own family may cast them out. Their own family may distrust them. There's fear here. But the angel wants to tell him and affirms to him from God, saying, taking Mary as your wife is the right thing to do. Joseph is wrestling with how to be a righteous man, how to be a devout Jew, how to follow the law, and at the same time, be merciful, not to shame her. He wants to do the godly thing, but what is the godly thing? He's trying to weigh his options. He has some legitimate options, but he's wrestling with it. How This woman that I trusted, this woman that I was married to, I was projecting my life for, maybe you already started building the house. And he's wrestling with this. And the angel says, marrying Mary is the right thing to do. The angel encourages, even though you may face some persecution, even though people are going to talk, people are going to talk. People are going to accuse you that that's your baby, that you, ha- you had physical relations before you were supposed to. You're going to be accused of that, Joseph. Mary's going to be accused of either that or cheating on you. You're going to face some persecution, but the right thing to do is to take Mary as your wife. Why? Because this baby is from the Holy Spirit. This child is conceived from God himself, which means that if this baby is from the Holy Spirit, if this baby is from God, then Mary did not cheat on you. She is not lying to you, and she is still a virgin. And so this gives Joseph the confidence that even though he's going to face trial, even though he's going to face the talk, even though his family may say stuff to him, because of Mary, because of this baby, that he has the confidence that this is the right thing to do. That I can marry Mary, and I do not need to fear what will happen. I do not need to fear what people are going to say, because I, am a, 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 I want to follow God, and so I don't want to break the law. And so this is, does not break the law, no matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone accuses me of. I did not break the law. This is not the, this is not, I don't have sin here that they can accuse me of. I'm not disobeying God, no matter what anyone says. Mary didn't disobey God, no matter what anyone says. Joseph no longer has to wonder, is he making the right choice? Did Mary do this act? Is she guilty? He doesn't have to wonder anymore. He doesn't have to wrestle between being too merciful or too vindictive. He doesn't have to choose between being righteous and being merciful, wondering if he really did the right thing, if he chose the right option. The angel is telling him, this is the definitive right choice. And that is to marry Mary. And because of that, and because now, Joseph, you know that this is God's plan, do not waver. Do not fear. 
So Joseph now could in good conscience take Mary as his wife, no matter what anyone says about him, her, or the baby. Let's go to the third part of the dream. The third part of the dream I want to emphasize is what the angel says when, when the angel says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, telling him what is happening. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes supernatural virgin conception. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. It is God himself who caused this conception. And so, why do we keep talking about this? Why, is it, why do I need to explain the virgin birth? Why is this so important to Christmas? Well, that's answered in our second of our three Christmas presents. So let's, go to our, let's unwrap our second Christmas present, the name of Jesus in verse 21. Let's read that again, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child will save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph lives in Nazareth. He's from Nazareth. And I point that out because we know that the synagogue in Nazareth has the book of Isaiah. How do we know that? Because in Luke 4, Jesus opens it and reads it. So the synagogue had the book of Isaiah. We know that. Joseph is a devout Jew. He went to synagogue. So if he was listening during synagogue, then when the angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Isaiah 53 would have popped into his head. Because Isaiah 53 was a famous messianic part of Isaiah. And it should have come flooding into his mind. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. And then Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, And yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53 is this amazing messianic passage about the suffering servant. And so he calls this to mind for Joseph. And Matthew wants this on our mind as a reader. Because Matthew means to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. How do we know Matthew wants to tell us? How do, you, how do we know that Matthew has the intention to tell us and to prove to us that Jesus is the Messiah? It's spoken in Isaiah 53. Because in verse 18, Matthew calls him Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Which means anointed one. If you want to cross-reference that, that's Psalm 2, verse 2, a messianic psalm. Christ means Messiah. And so the angel is proclaiming that the long-awaited Messiah has come. That's what Matthew wants to draw our attention to. And now the angel is saying to Joseph that your adopted son, Jesus, is this long-awaited Messiah. And you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now let's talk about the name of Jesus. The name Jesus is actually the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew. And that name, Joshua, Jesus, Yeshua, that name literally means Yahweh saves. God 
saves. And so the title that Matthew gives him, Jesus Christ, is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And this virgin birth, this child that comes from this virgin birth, will be the one who saves his people from their sins. So this angel is announcing to this devout Jewish man that this child is the expected Messiah. And that means that this child will make the need for animal sacrifice obsolete. The angel is revealing to Joseph that the need for the, to sacrifice bulls and goats is coming to an end. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes, or rather his leathery slides. Joseph is a faithful Jew. We see that in how he practices the customs in Matthew and Luke. He follows all the customs. He knows the law. And if he was a practicing Jew, he goes up for uh, Passover every year. And what do you do when you go up to Passover? You sacrifice. You make sacrifice. We see him do that in the book of Luke. And so put yourself in Joseph's shoes, hearing this word about the Messiah that is coming. You, as a, as a Jewish person, have to give sacrifice every year. And not only every year, you give it pretty often, depending on what happens in your life. He regularly makes sacrifices. But each time you make a sacrifice, you're confronted with the reality that this is not a permanent fix. This sacrifice I'm giving right now is not a permanent fix. If you sin, you need to sacrifice again. If another year comes, you need to sacrifice again. But now the angel declares that Jesus is the Messiah that you have been waiting for, and he will save his people from his sins. This is the one. This is the child who will atone for your sins, not as a temporary atonement like the animal sacrifices that you give every year. But this is the once and for all, ultimate atonement. Now, we won't get into all the comparison between Old Testament sacrifice and Jesus' sacrifice. I'll leave that to Pastor Henry when he gets into the book of Hebrews, and we'll see a lot of that comparison in the weeks to come. But let's think about Jesus. If Jesus is going to save his people from his sins, put yourself in Joseph's shoe. Joseph is probably wondering, how is this possible? How is this Jesus going to be able to save his people from his sins? I make sacrifice for my sins every year. I make it pretty often. I know what the date of atonement is. I know I have to give a lamb. How is this child going to save his people from his sins? How is this possible? The how is answered in our third Christmas present, the presence of Jesus in verses 22 to 23. Let's read that. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The how is explained in the name Emmanuel. Because Emmanuel means God with us. When the angel tells Joseph that his adopted son should be named Jesus because he will save his name his people from his sins or from their sins, Joseph is left wondering how. 
How can a mere man do this? And the answer is, a mere man can't. In order to take away our sins, we need a proper substitute. But this substitute would need to be literally a man, a physical man, in order to represent mankind. But that man would also need to be perfect, sinless, living a life never sinning. And this person, this man, would also need to have the power of God. Why? Because he needs to bear the full punishment of God for all of mankind's sins. And so in order to answer that paradox, Matthew goes to a prophecy. Matthew goes to the, the prophecy found in Isaiah, in Isaiah 14, he, when he quotes this. So this is Matthew's quotation in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew knows what we're thinking. Okay, so Jesus means that he will save his people from his sins. How? How will he be able to do that? How is Jesus going to be able to save us from our sins? And, and Matthew's answer is Emmanuel. God with us. This baby that will be born is God with us. That's how it's going to be possible. And so I said earlier that God's presence is foundational to the gospel itself. So let's get into that. Why is God's presence, why is God with us so important to the gospel? And that's because the presence of God is the key that unlocks the gospel. Think back to Genesis 3. Think back. This is all the way at the beginning of the Old Testament. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve. And in, in before Genesis 3, they have unfettered access to the presence of God. They're in the Garden of Eden. They walk with God, literally. God walks beside them. But then they sin. And then they're cut off from the presence of God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, this is right after they sin. And they, being Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, of the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. So they have just sinned, and because of that, they hide themselves from the presence of God. They had the full access to the presence of God, but now they sinned, and they hide, and not only do they just hide, but they are about to get kicked out of the garden, and there they will lose unfettered access to the presence of God. They no longer have that access. And later in Genesis 3, God promises that one day a son will come from Eve, and restore that relationship between God and man. And so the whole Old Testament is a slow, progressive revelation, revealing God's plan to reconcile mankind back to himself. And how the Old Testament is about how God will bring us back into his presence. The presence of God is a big theme in the Old Testament. Because the desire to be in God's presence is continually on Israel's mind. In Exodus, God instructs Israel to build a tabernacle. Why did they build a tabernacle? So that they can have access to the presence of God. But it's limited. 
We're told why they build the tabernacle. God wants them to build the tabernacle in Exodus 25, verse 8. God says that I may dwell in their midst. But then in Exodus 29, verse 45, this is what God says. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So God wants them to have the tabernacle so that he can dwell with his people. He wants them to have tabernacle so that he can dwell with them. But the tabernacle is also limited. Access to the tabernacle is also limited. People can't just approach the tabernacle however they want or whenever they want. They cannot see God face to face because in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, there would be a special room called the Holy of Holies. And this was a special place where God's presence was localized over the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus, Exodus 25 verse 22 says, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give command you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the Holy of Holies. But not anyone can walk into the Holy of Holies. Not any person of Israel could just walk in the tabernacle and walk into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was very restricted. It had the presence of God, but it was restricted. It was restricted to the high priest. He could only go in there once a year, and in a specific way, and for a specific duty. He could not just walk in there whenever he wanted to do whatever he wanted, just to chat with God. The presence of God was there, but it was limited. The presence of God was always with his people, but it was always limited. Why? Because mankind had sinned, and we had a broken relationship with God. And because of that, our access to him has always been limited. God was always present with his people, but that presence was always limited. Israel, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they had the presence of God in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, but again, that's still limited. They could not see God face to face. Even Moses, a man who spoke with God, we know that God wants to be present with them because in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But later, when Moses wants to see the full glory of God, he wants, says, I want, to, I want to be in your presence fully. God says, you can't. You can have a limited glimpse. Because sinful Moses could only handle a glimpse. God tells Moses in Exodus thirty-three twenty, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. They could not see him. Even Moses could not see God face to face. But you see this yearning to be in God's presence throughout the Old Testament. Because then we come to David. And David, when he's confessing one of his most heinous sins in Psalm 51, verses 9 to 12, David writes this. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. It's David crying out 
He wants to be in the presence of God. But even David knows we can't have full access. He writes in Psalm 140, verse 13, Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. There's this yearning for the presence of God to be with God throughout the Old Testament. David, along with the Old Testament followers of God, they ask the question time and time again, how can we get back to the presence of God? How can I be with God? How can we dwell in the presence of God? That's where I want to be. And the answer that is given to them time and time again is if you want to be in the presence of God, you need atonement for sin. And if you want to be in the presence of God, it's only through sacrifice and atonement for your sin. And when you do that, when you offer an animal, you can have limited access to the presence of God. Why limited? Because sacrifices and atonements themselves, those sacrifices, those animals were always limited. They were always inadequate. They were always temporary. The sacrifices of bulls and goats, that that was their substitute. Those bulls and goats represented them as a man or a woman. But it was imperfect. It was temporary. It was inadequate. They had bloods and the blood of bulls and goats try to pay for their sins. And thus they could have some access to God, but not full access to God. Their access to God could only go so far as the quality of their sacrifice. And so while they were unblemished animals, those substitutes could not adequately represent them. They were still imperfect in their quality. They were imperfect in their sacrifice. Because these animals were mere shadows. These animal sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, was just a shadow pointing to the real thing. Hebrews tells, that, uh, t- tells us that in Hebrews 10, verse 4. It says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Bulls and goats could never take away the sins. And that brings us back to our fateful Christmas night. On that night, when the Virgin Mary gave birth to a son, the whole situation changed. Why? How did it change? Well, let's go back to our passage. Verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So how did the situation change? Well, now a child was born who would be God with us. To unpack the name Emmanuel, to unpack the idea of God with us, we need some, some background on this quotation. So Matthew, we know, is quoting the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 7.14. And so to understand Isaiah 7.14 properly, let's set the scene of Isaiah 7. Let's get some background. In Isaiah 7, or in the book of Isaiah, Israel is a divided kingdom. There are ten tribes to the north, which they call Israel or Samaria sometimes. And there are two tribes in the south, they call themselves Judah, and the capital is Jerusalem. In the northern kingdom, they always have some random kings. But in the southern kingdom, carries the line of David. Assyria in the world is 
the rising superpower. Assyria is the, the big hitter. And Assyria has started to flex its muscles in the world, and they push around the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria, which is above that. So Israel and Syria, they form an alliance, and they pressure Judah to join them against Assyria. And Ahaz, or Ahaz in or Ahaz in Hebrew, is the king in, in Judah. So Ahaz is the king in Judah, and he refuses to join the alliance. And so Israel and Syria attack him. They attack him, and their intention is to dethrone him and set up a puppet king. We see that in Isaiah 7, 6. But they're unable to take Jerusalem. They're unable to dethrone him. They attack him. They attack Judah. But they can't dethrone him. But this attack, this leaves Ahaz quaking in his boots. Or as Isaiah 7, 2 says, his heart shook like the trees of the wind. Ahaz was scared. This attack scared Ahaz. But what do we know about this Ahaz? What do we know about King Ahaz? Well, Ahaz was not a good guy. Ahaz was an evil king. He does not follow after God, Yahweh. He doesn't trust God. In fact, he worships all these other false gods. And he has even sacrificed his own infants on the altars of false gods. He's killed his own babies in, in worshiping false gods. Not only that, but he led Israel, I mean Judah, to do the same. So he's leading the people astray. It's a very bad king. And we'll see that, that he is not a good guy, further evidenced in his response to the whole situation, to his predicament. When he's scared, and is scared of Israel and Syria attacking him, instead of asking God for help, instead of praying and asking that God would rescue his, his people, instead of turning to Yahweh for rescue, who does Ahaz turn to? Assyria. We won't turn there, but Second Chronicles 28 and Second Kings 16 would give you all the details if you want to study it yourself. But Ahaz bribes the king of Assyria named Tiglath-Pileser. And he asked the king of Assyria to come to his rescue. And he actually gives him gold out of the temple. He figures, Ahaz figures, that if these guys are going to bully me, Israel and Syria, then I'm going to get the biggest bully on the playground and hire him to defend me. That makes sense, right? Well, it only makes sense if you believe that God is not more powerful than the biggest bully on the playground. And so here we are, this is a situation, and we come to the the passage, the background of where we're at in our quotation of Isaiah. And this is the message. God, speaking through Isaiah, confronts Ahaz in Isaiah 7, verse 10. Isaiah says this, speaking for the Lord. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. That's a great offer. God is saying, 
Ask me for a sign. And this sign will be as de- could be as deep as hell or as high as heaven. And I'll give it to you. Ask me for a sign that I am with you. If you want to know whether I'm with you or not, whether I will save you from these attacks, ask me. Ask me for a sign. And you can ask me for anything. Give me the hardest. Give me the biggest ask you can think of. As low as hell. As high as heaven. Ask me for anything you want and I will do it. That's God's offer. And Ahaz's response, it sounds good, but he's just feigning piety because he says he does not want to put God to the test. Now that sounds good, but we know he's fake. How do we know he's fake? For one, he doesn't really worship God. He doesn't really worship Yahweh. He's proved that in his actions. And two, he's already reached out to Assyria. He's already asked for help. He's already stolen gold out of the temple and given it to Assyria in order that they would come help him. So he's faking this piety. And if there was any question about whether he's fake or not, we know because God's response that Ahaz is not saying this out of genuine love for God. Because God responds through Isaiah saying this in verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God says to him, fine. If you will not ask me for a sign, if you say you don't want a sign, if you don't really trust me to ask me for anything you want, then I will give you a sign, and this sign will be a judgment, will be a rebuke for your disbelief. What is the sign? The sign is, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, there's so, so, this passage has so much, so much debate uh, surrounding it, uh, basically asking the question, is this Emmanuel, this son, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, is this son, is this fulfilled in Isaiah's day? Or later on? Or both? There are scholarly men and godly men on different sides of the debate. It's one of those passages where if you get three pastors in a room talking about it, you'll come up with four answers. So let me tell you what you need to know for this morning where we are in the book of Matthew. For our purposes this morning, for where we're in the book of Matthew and what we're studying on the birth of Jesus, this is what you need to know. Matthew is correct. Matthew is right. Now, what do I mean by that? Matthew applies Isaiah 7.14 to the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I believe, and we believe, that Matthew is divinely inspired. Which means, I believe that the Holy Spirit helps Matthew interpret Isaiah 7 perfectly. And so, Matthew's interpretation of Isaiah 7 is to apply it to Jesus' birth, but Matthew doesn't go further than that. And so, while we can have an intellectual debate about whether or not 
Isaiah 7 applied to various children in Isaiah's day, that's not important for our purposes this morning. For our purposes this morning, I don't think we have to have a definitive answer. Why? Because if we get caught up in that debate, if we lose focus of the most important thing about Isaiah 7.14 here in Matthew 1, then we're distracted. The most important thing that while Scripture doesn't tell us if this is single fulfillment or double fulfillment, Matthew does make one thing clear. And most importantly, this passage applies to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying this to be clever. I'm not saying this because I want to avoid intellectual debate or I don't know. I'm not saying it because I think this is worthless. I'm just saying because it's secondary. And if we were going to do a sermon series on Isaiah, or we were going to have a Sunday school class on the book of Isaiah, I'd want to spend some time on Isaiah 7.14 and and discuss uh, this prophecy. I'd give you the options of of what is available, what the debate is all about. I'd want to have an intellectual debate with you. I'd want to talk about it. But this morning, for where we are in Matthew 1, I'm saying, let's not lose focus of the most important thing the most important person, and that is Jesus. Matthew applies this to Jesus. So let's apply this to Jesus. And I say that because as I was studying for this sermon, I was seeing so many new things in Matthew 1. And I was spending a lot of time in Isaiah 7 trying to figure out, trying to weigh the options of of who I thought this prophecy was about based on all the different scholars. And I was excited. And I was excitedly telling my wife, Megan, about all the things that I was studying and learning, all the things that I was seeing. I was trying to look at this with fresh eyes. So I was coming up, so I was seeing all these new things that I had never really noticed or I had forgotten about. And she said, and she, she was excited too. She said, oh, these are really cool things. These things are all really interesting. But at the end of the day, don't forget who this passage is all about. Because Matthew 1, the focus of this passage is Jesus. Make sure you preach Jesus. And I was like, you're totally right. If I stand up here and I tell you all the options of the Isaiah prophecy, but I get lost in that forest and I forget to preach Jesus, then I've missed Matthew's whole point. And I've failed. So whether this prophecy applies to another child and partial fulfillment isn't our scope today. Our scope this morning is to say that this prophecy definitely applies to Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. John 1.14 says this, And the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Israel has been yearning for the presence of God. The people of God have been crying out for God to dwell among them. And Jesus is that answer. Jesus is eternal God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. He is literally God with us. And that is what we call the incarnation. 
But let's go back to Ahaz real quick. Why was Ahaz worried in the first place? Well, he was selfish, and he was worried that he would be dethroned. And God assures, assures him, you need not worry about being dethroned. He thought he was going to lose a kingdom. But God says, you don't need to worry about that. Because my promise to King, Dehab, uh, King David will not fail. I promise King David in 2 Samuel 7, and that promise will not fail, Ahaz. And as a sign that this promise will not fail, I'll give you a sign. The sign is the virgin birth. And in that sign, God promises that whatever threatens you, Ahaz, whatever threatens the line of David, it will not break the line. It will not end your line. So whatever threatens you, Ahaz, David's line will not be cut. There will still be a king of David who sits on the throne forever. That's the sign. You're scared you're going to be dethroned, Ahaz? God's saying, you shouldn't worry about that because I will not fail King David. The themes of Davidic king and presence of God are so key in the book of Matthew. Matthew 1, this begins with announcing that Jesus is God with us. He is present with us. And in chapter 28, which is the last chapter of Matthew, he ends his book with what? Pop quiz. What does Matthew end his book with in chapter 28? Matthew 28. Who knows? Shout it out. Louder? A little louder? Who's confident? Matthew 28. What does it end with? Pop quiz. Anyone? The Great Commission. Thanks, LaVon. The Great Commission. That's one of our Sunday school teachers. Thank you, LaVon. The Great Commission. Matthew ends his book with the Great Commission, and this is what the Great Commission says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The presence of God is key in, is a key theme in the book of Matthew. He starts with it and he ends with it. Jesus is saying, All authority has been given to me. Why can he say that in the beginning of the Great Commission? Why can he say all authority has been given to me? Why? Because he is the ultimate king of David who was resurrected from the dead, who will never die again. So because of that, he can sit on the throne forever. And because of that, because he is the ultimate king who has been resurrected from the dead, because he will sit on David's throne forever, he can end the Great Commission with his presence. God's presence promised to his people, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God promises us as Christians his presence because he is the king of David who will stand forever and rule forever. So why can Jesus promise it then? Why can, at the end, can he promise his presence? Because the veil of the Holy of Holies 
was ripped in half at his resurrection. Access to the presence of God was now forever open. How can access be forever open? Because the age of the sacrifice of bulls and goats is gone. And the age of the once for all sacrifice of Jesus has now been completed. So he can say, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And what does he do right after he gives the great commission and ascends to heaven? This is not another quiz, but what does he do? He sends the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, God himself. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Indwells believers. 2 Timothy 1.14, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. God now dwells in us as Christians. Talk about a stark difference between the tabernacle or the temple where we didn't have access to God. God now dwells in us. Talk about the ultimate meme of how it started and how it's going. And we still have a future. This doesn't end at death for Christians because when we die, we go to heaven. And in the future... Our access to the the presence of God will come to full culmination. In Revelation 21, verse 3, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The Bible is one long story of how Man once walked in God's presence, but sinned. And because of that, his presence is taken away, or at least limited. And so the people of God yearn to get to the back to the presence of God. And God provides a way back through his son, Jesus. And then it ends with man forever basking in God's presence in heaven. That's our future. That's what beholds us after death. Revelation 22, verse 4, says this, They will see his face, talking about God, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face. Moses could not see God's face. We will see God's face in heaven. Heaven is unfettered access to the presence of God. That's what we have waiting for us in heaven presence of God. But if we go back to the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah 7 to 9 has a lot, and I want to come back to another Christmas passage we always quote, Isaiah 7 to 9, but it is a lot about the Messiah. And so let's go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah writes this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah 7 to 9 is all about the Messiah. 
But but Isaiah, remember, Isaiah is in the midst of that yearning. He doesn't have this yet. He's 700 years before Jesus would be born. So Isaiah doesn't know the details, but he knows that this Messiah is coming. He knows that this, this is a sign and talking about the Messiah, and he's left wondering, is this Messiah going to be human, a human man, or God himself? Because we're talking about a child, but we're talking about someone who's going to sit on David's throne, but wonderful counselor, mighty God. Is this going to be human or is this going to be man? He's left with that tension and he doesn't know the answer fully. But the answer is given 700 years later in the birth of Jesus, the God-man. And I say God-man because Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that is how Jesus can be Emmanuel. He is God who took on flesh. But our reconciliation to the presence of God, that wasn't completed by the birth of Christ. Why? Because we still have the issue of sin. We still have the issue of sacrifice. We still are separated from God because of our sin. So what do we need? The gospel. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we, are, we mankind are sinners. All of us. Sin is anything we think, do, or say that is against God's character. Why is God's character important? And why does God make the rules? Well, because he created everything. So he gets to define what is sin. So we all sin. That's our predicament. And our just punishment, the just punishment for our sin is eternity in hell. Why? Because if you sin against a holy, eternal, perfect God, Your punishment must be eternal and perfect. So for all of humanity, hell is our default destination. What we deserve unless God intervenes. And he does. And that's why Jesus was born. Jesus was born so that he could live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sins. Rise victorious again over sin and death. Why did Jesus have to live a perfect life and die on the cross? Why did I intentionally say that? Why does he have to live a perfect life and die on the cross? Because you remember those imperfect sacrifices we talked about earlier? The bulls and goats? Well, those blood sacrifices were imperfect placeholders, foreshadowing the real, ultimate, adequate sacrifice, Jesus How could Jesus be our ultimate sacrifice? Because in order to adequately represent mankind, we need a proper substitute. And Jesus could be our substitute because he is fully man. But in order to take God's full punishment for all of mankind, to to bear the full wrath of God for all of mankind, you need the power of God. And Jesus is fully God. So there in that manger, in Bethlehem, laid the God-man. The Messiah that Isaiah had been wondering about. Is this going to be man or is this going to be God himself? That's what he's wondering. Will this person sitting on the throne of David, who is this going to be? How is God going to fulfill his promise to David and now to King Ahaz? Will this be God or will this be man? 
And Matthew answers with a yes. Yes, he will be man. And yes, he will be God. How? Because he is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And with that in mind, the presence of God, the fact that we will get to dwell with God fully in heaven, the fact that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, the presence of God, that Jesus is with us even to the end of the age. With that in mind, as we approach Christmas next week, as we sing songs, as we think about Christmas, as we open presents, let's not forget our three Christmas presents. The birth of Christ, the name of Christ, and the presence of Christ. Let's have Emmanuel on our minds as we walk towards Christmas this year and as we sing these songs. So let me pray for us and let us respond in worship to our Emmanuel, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the one who saves his people from their sins, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your presence one that we often take for granted and we forget about. But you are with us. And you can be with us because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And that is what separated us. But that has been taken away. Our sin has been dealt with. And because you rose again, you are the king of David who will stand and sit on his throne forever. You are the lamb standing, though you were slain. So I pray that as we worship through singing, as we worship through living this next week, as we approach Christmas, that we would not forget the the Christmas story, that we would not take it for granted, but that we would worship you, Jesus, the one who has taken away our sins, Emmanuel, God with us. In Jesus' name, amen.